there, this is Robin Norgren and I'm your host for Montessori Creativity and the Meaning of Life. You can find all the work that I do on my Instagram account. I have links listed over there and my accounts are at Robin underscore Norgren or at UBU, the number four, life. I'd like to start with some words from The Cloister Walk by Kathleen Norris. Her essays titled The Difference. Once as I was preparing an omelet, I turned to the friend standing in the kitchen of my apartment at the Ecumenical Institute and asked him, how do you like your eggs? I glanced up from chopping green onions to find him looking dazed but pleased, as if I had just suggested that we'd run off to Paris for the weekend. You know, I said, puzzled by his silence, runny or well done. And then it hit me. He's a monk, which means that no one ever asks him how he likes his eggs. For most of his adult life, he has dined communally, eating whatever is put before him. My monastic friends are often at pains to counteract the romantic image of the monk or, or nun, insisting rightly that they are ordinary people. Every once in a while, however, the difference asserts itself, a reminder of the fact that the monastic world is not like the world that most of us inhabit. To eat in a monastery is, to, is an exercise in humility. Daily, one is reminded to put communal necessity before individual preference. While consumer culture speaks only to preferences, treating even whims as needs to be granted, and the sooner the better, monastics sense that this pandering to delusions of self-importance weakens the true self and diminishes our ability to distinguish desires from needs. It's a price they're not willing to pay. But in a consumer culture, monastic people must be vigilant, remaining intentional about areas of life that most of us treat casually, with little awareness of what we're doing. One year at the American Benedictine Academy convention, an abbot, speaking on the subject of the monastic archetype, suddenly dropped all pretense to objectivity and said he was troubled by the growing number of cereals made available for breakfast in his community. How many kinds of cereals do we need, he asked, in order to meet genuine health needs without falling into thoughtless consumerism. The audience of several hundred Benedictine men and women broke into applause, obviously grateful that he'd captured in one seemingly trivial example an unease that many of them share about the way they live in contemporary America. One monk, a former abbot, said that he wasn't as concerned with the number of cereals available as he was with the cafeteria style of eating adopted by his community. When, he, when we serve ourselves, he said, we do not exemplify monastic values. He wondered if eating family style, sharing from a common bowl, waiting to be served and then serve your neighbor was a practical monastic was a practice monastic people could afford to lose a friend who is a retired corporate executive and a benedictine oblate has pointed out to me that monastic family style management differs greatly from management as practiced by a corporation 
While this difference sometimes results in Benedictines raising inefficiency to an art form, I've come to value the monastic witness to a model of institutional behavior that is not all business, that does not bow down before the idols of efficiency and the profit motive. Now that corporations are constructing ready-made communities in the form of gated and guarded suburban enclaves, the difference between monastic community and corporate culture has become all the more evident. What the New York Times recently termed the fastest-growing residential communities in the nations are private developments created out of fear of crime and urban chaos. Fear is not easily contained, and it is not surprising to find that these developments also manifest a fear of individual differences that might spring up with this enclave himself, requiring a draconian set of rules that attempt to provide for every eventuality. Outdoor clotheslines, satellite dishes, and street-side parking are often prohibited. And in some communities, a pet dog who strays from its own yard is zapped by an electronic monitor. While strict regulation of such things as the colors of house paint, the heights of hedges, the type of gardens or flower beds, the number and size of hanging planters for the front porch may give the severely anal retentive a place to call home, I find it a sad commentary on our ability to accept the responsibility of freedom. I suspect that it is also an experiment doomed to failure, as people discover that it is not easy to live according to a corporate model, and that their private governments, schools, and police forces provide more tyranny than security. The question asked by Tacticus when the well-to-do citizens of ancient Rome began fleeing the troubles of the city by retreating behind the walls of their guarded villas, who will guard the guards, is still a good one today. Kim Rosen discusses the anatomy of a poem in her book, Saved by a Poem. Words, after speech, reach into the silence. Only by the form, the pattern, can words or music reach the stillness. T.S. Eliot As in any romance, there are stages of intimacy when you fall in love with a poem. The first step is to get to know everything you can about the one you love. This shouldn't be hard, since new love makes you hunger to learn unstoppable. You want to hear every thought and find the resonance within you. You want to explore every inch of this new body and discover how it touches and awakens your own. What attracted you to this poem? What do you love about it? Where does it draw you into new territory in yourself and the world around you? How does it mirror the questions and knowings in the heart of your life right now, right here, right now? How does it affect your body? And how does it create the special aha that parts the veils of the mundane to allow some bright insight to shine through? Many ingredients combine to work the poem's magic. One of the most powerful is the physical dimension of the poem. The rhythms and sounds, the visual shape on the page, and the way the poem affects your breathing and pulse 
These have important conscious shifting effects, often without your awareness. There have been many fantastic books published in recent years about prosody, which is the word for the study of the sounds of poetry. Masterful poets such as Mary Oliver, Jane Hirschfield, and Robert Pinsky have put their thoughts on the page explaining the acoustic technology inside a poem in much greater detail. I want us to think about how these physical components of a, of a poem can affect your particular body, mind, and feelings, and how this awareness can be an aid to receiving the poem more deeply and letting its medicine work in you. The body of a poem affects your body, literally. At first, you may only be conscious of the conceptual level, what the words mean to you. But whether you are aware of it or not, your breathing has changed. You are feeling the beat of the poem's rhythm in your blood. You are hearing the song of the words inside you. It is even affecting the subtler pulsations of your seroprospinal fluid and the waters inside your cells. For instance, as you read the poem, the length of the lines has a physical impact on your eye movements. The eyes are the only part of our bodies that literally touch the brain. Moving the eyes cause ripples in the seroprospinal fluid that encases the brain and also flows down the center of the spine. This can create biochemical changes that affect consciousness. In the old Popeye shows, the cartoon character Bluto used to hypnotize olive oil with a pocket watch on a chain. The slim heroine would become inexplicitly fascinated with the pendulating object until she was entranced and oblivious, whereupon Bluto would proceed to beat up her beloved Popeye. While olive oil moved, her eyes closed, her arms stretched before her like a sleepwalker through some treacherous landscape unscathed. A similar principle, though different motive, informs a number of psychotherapeutic practice, practices such as the EMDR and the radix work. These processes work with eye movement to cause subtle changes in brain chemistry and activity so as to release trauma and affect healing. Thus, Reading Staniel Kunitz's regular short lines, If the water were clear enough, if the water were still, but the water is not clear, the water is not still, will cause a different wave pattern in the brain than reading Mary Howe's longer lines. Someone or something is leaning close to me now, trying to tell me the one true story of my life. This is from a book of journal prompts called Deepen the Way You Live Your Life by me, Robin Norgren. I arise in the morning torn between a desire to save the world and a desire to savor the world. This makes it hard to plan the day. E.B. White The world needs you to share what you savor. 
What a beautiful way to face the world. You are so in touch with your soul's purpose that each day gets better and better. Do you have a sense of how to reach that type of life joy? Is there a roadmap that you have been dreaming about that you need to chart on paper? Stop holding it in your heart and take some action steps. First step, write down what comes to mind when you think of the words, save the world. Now, write down what comes to mind when you think about these words, savor the world. These answers are trail markers to your new life.